0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast. So, yes, thanks for joining this public discussion. This is the second in an ongoing series of think tanks associated with Who's Afraid of Public Space, which is a major exhibition and research project initiated by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Today's session is co-hosted by ACCA and Footscray Community Arts Centre, and we are also pleased to have this session live Auslan interpreted by Brooke and Nick. Uh, The video recording will also be available via ACCA's Facebook page live now and then later with open captions uh, later this week. This session is also being recorded for release as an ACCA podcast series, which you can access later through your favourite podcast provider. Before we begin this forum, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation as the sovereign custodians of the land on which both ACCA and FCAC stand. I pay my respects to ancestors and elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and also of all the lands from which you are joining us today. I also extend these respects to all First Nations people who are generously participating in this conversation and those in our audience. Uh, My name is Miriam Kelly, and I'm a curator at ACCA, and with my colleagues, Max Delaney, Artistic Director and CEO, and Annika Christensen, Senior Curator, I'm part of the in-house curatorial team working with an assembly of external curatorial advisors and collaborators on the development of Who's Afraid of Public Space? This project continues ACCA's series of big picture exhibitions, inaugurated with Sovereignty in 2016 and followed by Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism in 2017. Who's Afraid of Public Space stems from the growing need in Australia to explore the contested nature of public space. To ask what is it that constitutes public culture and to delve into the character and composition of public life itself. While this project was initiated prior to the dramatic impacts on our experiences of public space under COVID, many of the issues and the questions that have been generated by our research so far show that the question is more pertinent than ever. It feels more urgent to be talking about the varied ways in which public space is designated, designed and used, and also to interrogate for whom public space is inaccessible unwelcoming, or unsafe. And really, who is public space for? The exhibition uh, part of this project will take place uh, over summer 2021-22 in a dispersed format, both at ACCA and in the public realm, as well as across Melbourne within the programs of partnering institutions. ACRA is really pleased to be partnering specifically with Abbotsford Convent, Arts Project Australia, Black Dot, Bus Project and of course Footscray Community Arts Centre. We are especially grateful to co-present with our partners these think tanks over the coming year. The full series of six think tank discussions will feed into the development of the exhibition as a whole and through their life online Uh, will contribute to a rich and polyphonic consideration of the increasingly complex nature of the public realm. Our Think Tank co-host today, FCAC, plays a fundamental role in nurturing, creating and presenting contemporary arts in collaboration with a wide range of Australian communities from their home in Melbourne's west. It is now my pleasure to hand over to today's moderator, Daniel Santangeli, the artistic director and co-CEO of Footscray Community Arts Centre, and to introduce today's session and our fantastic contributors. Thank you, Daniel.
1: Uh, thank you, Miriam. And um, I too would like to um, pay respect to um, the traditional owners of the land on which we gather, um, and pay my respects to elders, past and present. Um, so, my name is Daniel. I'm the artistic director at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Um, And I'd like to thank ACCA for inviting FCAC to host today's conversation. Um, I'll be facilitating the conversation over the next hour um, and trying as much as possible to get out of the way so that we can hear from the incredible panelists that we have joining us today. Um, I'll quickly provide a visual description of myself for audiences today who are blind or low vision. And so I'm in my early 30s I um, identify as male and I'm of Italian heritage. Um, I have a shaved uh, head um, and a trim, dark beard. Um, and I'm in my makeshift home office with a um, rather wonky-looking large bookcase behind me um, that hopefully I haven't um, tempted fate by mentioning that it's wonky-looking and doesn't collapse sometime during the talk. Um, so community and collaboration is the focus of today's Roundtable Conversation. Um, All panellists who will be introduced in a second work with communities in different ways and in different art forms. Um, Each uh, artist that joins us today navigates nuanced social, political and cultural terrain um, and in doing so are often faced with questions around community and collaboration. Um, In preparing for today, the panelists have been asked to reflect on how their own practices or practices that they've observed have navigated ideas of collaboration, collectivity, community engaged practice. And all panelists um, also work in the public sphere in different ways. Um, And for the purposes of tonight, I think it's worth having a kind of broad definition of what we mean by public space. Um, It has a wide variety of meanings. Um, and that, for panellists tonight, um, I think some of those, uh, you know, cover terrains such as built environment, cultural interest institutions, archives, the internet, and even and even public culture more broadly. At FCAC, a collaboration community is at the heart of what we do. Uh, located in the western suburbs of Melbourne for almost 50 years, uh, FCAC has worked with communities and artists um, who are underrepresented in the mainstream in mainstream culture to create work that is self-determined, that's culturally safe, and is representative of what is vitally important to those artists or those communities. And I'm thrilled to be here today with um, an incredible group of artists: Eugenia Flynn, Kent Morris, Roberta Joy Rich, and Kate Solan. Um, Before I hand over to the panellists to introduce themselves, I'd like to acknowledge Paola Bala, who was unable to join us for tonight. Paola is a a visual artist who who continues to make an immense contribution at FCAC um, and her work has contributed to making FCAC the place that it is today, um, particularly for Indigenous and female artists. Um, I'd also like to point out that for those joining us on Zoom tonight, um, you can use the Q and A function. Um, and uh, we'll have space at the end of the conversation today to feed some of those questions into the mix. So to begin with, each panellist has been invited to prepare a super short three-minute intro, um, a self-introduction as a way of introducing their practice to you, um, and also to help provide context for the more media conversation um, that will follow. So to begin with, I'd like to hand over to writer, arts worker and community organiser, Eugenia Flynn. Eugenia, over to you.
2: Um, thank you for that. So um, my name's Eugenia Flynn. Uh, as a visual descriptor, I'm a woman in her late 30s. I'm wearing a pink scarf um, on my head. I am wearing brown pinkish tortoiseshell glasses and a grey jumper and I'm sitting in front of a bookcase. And for some context, I have a cat who may meow or might jump up interview. Um, so that's a bit of context there. So as Daniel said, I'm a writer, arts worker, and I, I work in the community. I'm an Aboriginal um, woman, a Tiwi, Larrakia woman, Chinese, Malaysian, and, and Muslim. And I, I work in my communities through the arts, through literature, through um, community practice. And that's that sort of bit about community practice is really important to me and, and very central to what I do. So I work across, like, a range of different forms, literature, but I also work in performing arts, so music and theatre um, as an arts worker and also working more and more in visual arts and recently have been working with... Um, with Acme working in uh, screen culture, film and television, and um, working there in in exhibitions. So I do a a wide range of things, but the kind of central philosophy or the the central idea that underpins my practice is tied to this picture here that you can see. So um, this picture here is... Uh, It's from the 80s. It's from the 1988 bicentennial protest. So this is a picture of me. I'm about six years old and I'm standing, I'm the little girl standing in blue with her back to the camera playing with the big flag. So it's me and my three sisters and my mum and we're standing, um, we're standing in front of a huge Aboriginal flag that's been suspended from a big fig tree I think this is at La Perouse in Sydney. And, um, you know, I'm standing next to my older sister B, who would have been a young teenager. She's standing next to my sister Angela who's a couple of years older than me, so about eight. And she's standing next to my sister Jackie who would have been 10 or 11. And Jackie is standing next to my mum who would have been in her forties. And she's wearing some pretty cool glasses. So you know, it's the it's the '80s, and and you know, we I think my dad is, has taken this photo. And when I talk about um, community engaged practice, all of my work really is looking at how the past impacts the present. And so when I work around things to do with structural or st- systemic issues, for example, systemic racism. Um, that kind of thing, it really is about bringing communities to, you know, essentially resistance and liberation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, for First Peoples. And I work with a lot of um, non-white migrant communities, so particularly the ones that I live in, so, you know, um, Asian community for lack of a better term, um, and the Muslim community. And I also work with um, refugees and asylum seekers and ex-detainees as well, but really predicated around this idea that there are um, wrongs that have been made. There's the fiction of terra nullius and all of the racism and violence used to perpetuate that myth through to today. And so working with communities is about getting them to Understand that, and to work towards, particularly for those who aren't um, who aren't First Peoples, to work in solidarity with First Peoples. So, to to kind of work towards this this freedom and resistance of of Blackfellas. So this picture is really important to me, and I guess it kind of encapsulates a little bit of my practice. You know, my mum is a Chinese Malaysian woman who migrated in the late sixties and. Here she is at this protest, and this protest was so important. It was um, the protest against celebrating 200 years of, um, you know, since the uh, first Philippe came, and that was important to, um, to protest, and there were, you know, tens of thousands of people from across the country that went. So that tells you a little bit about where
1: my practice is located. Thanks. Thank you, Eugenia. Um, I'd like to introduce visual artist and uh, CEO of The Torch, Kent Morris. Over to you, Kent. Thanks,
3: Daniel. And, and thanks, Eugenia. And, look, I'd like to just begin. I'm, I'm situated on the on the lands of the Yalikutwoolam people of the Boonwurung and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, I am a male in my 50s. I'm... Aboriginal and Irish, and I have one of my favourite uh, earthy flannies on. I've also got the classic COVID haircut that hasn't been touched or seen scissors in seven months, and I'm sitting in my studio in front of a a, a large piece of my artwork that's predominantly a shot of the sky with a reconfigured uh, power lines and structures with four magpies flying into each corner. Um, My... Practice covers two two main areas. Um, One is my work at The Torch, where an organisation and a program that I built nine years ago to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women incarcerated in the prisons of Victoria and upon their release from prison through an art and culture-based program that supports cultural connection or reconnection, building of self-esteem and confidence and hopefully some of the support networks through connecting to the arts and to the arts industry, and particularly by maintaining cultural resources and research and development to navigate a pathway back to the community where the potential for the men and women can be uh, unleashed and and explored and and obtained. Um, And it really interlinks quite closely with my practice. The work on the screen currently most recent work in in public space through through ACCA through the Who's Afraid of Public Space program, the Never Alone large digital billboard. Um, And if we just hit to the next slide, please. I'm very interested in whilst I exhibit widely in galleries, part of my philosophy is around how we, we share and bring forth stories and experiences and, and concepts and ideas, particularly that are woven into the, the history of this country and share them publicly within spaces. So this is a city of mini Valley out at Nidri, a work from the Up Above series, again, placed in a in a retail environment, in a, in a space where people can interact and become engaged with, with the work and ideas and concepts, particularly from uh, my perspective as a First Nations community member, and how public space, history, stories, those that are hidden predominantly can be brought forward and expressed and shared and discussed. Um, next slide, please. And so this work And one of my very, uh, I guess, great interests across the the TORCH program and my practice is around connection and communication with the public around sometimes difficult issues and sometimes around issues which which aren't difficult but which would create such a a change in terms of how we restructure and, and rethink about philosophical paradigms in relation to... How we navigate forward. So this was at the university, of, or is at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, it's a, a double lift shaft at one of the educational facilities. And as in a second, we'll get to the second part of this work. But for me, it's very important that it's not just the sharing of culture and stories. It's really around understanding and education and, and ideas around knowledge and, and the extraordinary knowledge and experiences that are embedded in this country, not just over a couple of hundred years for over tens of thousands of years and how the combination of that sharing exploration and communication with the broader community can re- support development towards a, a, a more significant engagement with first nations ideologies philosophies around how we how, how we perceive ourselves as a community and we'll just get to the next slide. This, this story that's represented is a very old Barkindji story it's about two sisters in the sky, the two white corallas, and it's, it's shot on my, on my traditional country up in Burke on Barkindji Country, the north end of the of the Darling Barker River. But how we might look at reshaping, reimagining how, how we think and, and how we perceive and view not only the history of country and place. But our, I guess, motivations and, and ideas and thoughts towards a more sustainable and, and an equitable future uh, for this country. Uh, so that, that's me.
1: Great. Thank you, Ken. Um, Roberta Joy-Rich is a multidisciplinary artist, and I'd like to hand over to you, Roberta, to introduce yourself.
4: Thanks, Daniel. Uh, I would first like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung traditional owners of the land I reside and work and acknowledge Wadawurrung peoples whose land I was born and raised upon. I pay my respects to their ancestors, elders, and families and recognize I am on stolen land. Um, My name is Roberta Joy Rich. I'm named after both of my parents aged in my early 30s and identify as a brown and black Southern African diaspora woman. I have fair yellowish complexion with dark brown, thick curly hair that sits in line with my jaw. At the end of my curls are hints of grey-green colour from when I once had epic blue hair that then turned to a more questionable choice. I'm wearing clear-framed glasses and a black top visible from my shoulders up sitting in front of my laptop in a white walled room with a wooden door situated on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin nation. Um, I'm happy for you to just flick through the pictures I have as I talk. Um, my work is almost always personal, um, drawing heavily from my Southern African roots and my experiences as a diaspora woman living in the context of settler nation Australia My art responds to constructions of race and gender identity, sometimes with satire and humour in the form of video, installation, print media, uh, textiles, sometimes performance, but mostly mixed media projects. I utilise archival, uh, sociopolitical, media and popular culture to explore and engage with notions of authenticity and its relationship to constructions of identity and its forms of representation. Um, Many of my projects are sustained explorations of language and power and how these forms influence the ways in which one can pass, fail or speak in various contexts. I chose to briefly describe my physical features while affirming my African identity to acknowledge problems born from oppressive colonial structures that continue to quantify physical features towards an understanding of cultural identity that in turn homogenizes its complexities and fluidity. Uh, This relates to some of my aims and interests within my practice to create works that deconstruct colonial modalities and highlight systems that problematize identity within the community Um, Working towards depicting empowering forms of self determination and what this looks like in visual arts practice.
1: Great, thank you, Roberta. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Kate Sulan, who is a performance maker, director, dramaturg, and facilitator, um, and the finalist of our panelists to introduce themselves. Over to you, Kate.
5: Hi, um, I'm um, zooming in from uh, Wurundjeri country, um, and I've been um, really grateful for the Merry Creek, which is just down the bottom of my street, which has been sustaining and nourishing me during this time of lockdown. Um, I'm sitting in front of a brown wooden doors with stained glass um, windows panes. I have a on a blue skiddy with a little bit of sparkle. Um, I have blonde hair, which is um, kind of messily tied up in a loose bun, and I use my hands a lot to communicate. My children are on the other side of the doors, so fingers crossed, um, and I'm really thrilled and um, grateful to be here for this conversation. I'm a performance maker and a facilitator, and the main thing I I find myself doing is the Artistic Director of RAUCUS, and um, RAUCUS is a long-term ensemble of 15 performers, and that's a picture of the ensemble on the screen. It's a collaboration of um, disabled and non-disabled performers. We're a collection of diverse minds and bodies and imaginations, and together we um, we collaborate to make contemporary performance. Um, You can show the next slide if you'd like. Um, It's a long-term artistic conversation. We've been having it for 20 years, and it's a privilege, um, a real privilege to work with people for such a long time to make work together. But as well as being an ensemble, we also run a public program. And our public program is the work that we do with and in communities. Um, Our public program is really diverse in art form and scope, um, but inclusivity and access and relationship are at the heart of everything we do. Um, These projects range in size and scales. We make, sometimes we make films, installation, public art projects, large scale dance events, or bespoke one-on-one experiences. And we work with a range of communities. Um, Sometimes we work with very young people. Some We've um, done a project with over 80s and anything in between. And what we like to do is um, often bring together unexpected groups of people who might not ordinarily collide. So the next um, slide shows an example of one of our um, public programs, which is a a real um, bringing together of basketballers, young people, um, people with disabilities and performers. when we talk about our public program we talk about enlivening people and places and perceptions Um, there's another slide I think of a public program project Um, this is an installation we made um, as part of the festival of lights in fed square it was a very very um, beautiful process with five young people but then we shared it with many many people who came and experienced and interacted with the work and um, the other thing that I that might be relevant to this conversation is that I'm one of the artists involved in the Refuge Project, which is a project um, run by Arts House. It's um, a project that brings together artists and emergency management um, services and local community to um, explore the climate emergency. And we bring together these groups to help re- reimagine responses to different climate emergencies. Three years ago, we imagined into a pandemic, so it's quite a weird feeling to be in this moment right now. Um, it's a five-year project. We're heading towards its final year, and I mainly work um, in collaboration with the Red Cross, and I've been looking um, through those five years at emotional preparedness and um, well-being. So that's me.
1: Great. Thank you, Kate. Um, so we'll now move into um, the next part of the, um, of the panel, which is the much more kind of traditional conversation, um, panel conversation. Um, so, uh, and so, and we'll stay in that for the next half hour um, and hopefully have time at the end for some questions. So do please keep um, sending questions through on the um, Q&A function. And um, to begin with, i am like really keen to focus in on community-engaged practice and kind of what that means um, to you as artists. Um, there's a lot of um, community-engaged practice can often seem kind of um, sort of mythic to a lot of practitioners is the community is this sort of thing that's out there off in the distance um, and the kind of um, ideas that maybe sit behind or the, the methodologies that sit behind community engaged practice can sometimes seem a little um, out of reach as though that's something that other practitioners do but not the kind of work that um, maybe is relevant to my practice. Um, Uh, Jade Lilly, who was the predecessor, my predecessor at SCAC, would talk to the idea that community engaged practice isn't an art form. It's just what makes good practice good. Um, So, um, Eugenia, I'm kind of curious to start with you, um, partly because of your, you know, your back, your kind of growing up in sort of a background of community organising amongst your family. Um, And, you know, community engagement is something that you really um, uh, put front and center um, in the way that you talk about your practice. And um, Eugenia, for you, what what does generative and considered community engaged practice look and feel like?
2: Yeah. Look, you know, I think one of the things that I was trying to get out in my introduction to my practice is that, you know. I strongly believe that because of the unresolved history of this country that, you know, your practice has to um, centre and be underpinned by um, that, that understanding of that unresolved history and working towards a resolution. So for me, you know, my way of being is about relationships that's how I was raised um, as a black fella as um, a Chinese person that you're you're not um, it's not they're not individualistic cultures or ways of being and so being connected to other people having relate good relationships with other people having a sense of responsibility and accountability to to people um, that, you know, are important is is just central to my practice and the way that I work. So, you know, one of the ways that that might operate is, um, you know, being a guest on and um, Country, um, you know, living and working in Melbourne and being a, a visitor to here because my mob are from the top end. I make sure that, you know, everything I do um, is about working with the local mob, working with those those traditional owners um, around what their aspirations are. So, you know, very much what makes good practice for me is about engaging with First Peoples uh, in ways that are meaningful and in ways that are moving towards that sense of freedom and liberation and and working on resistance. And I think also... Um, listening to people and what, you know, it's not about me or it's not about what the outcomes are. The process is really important to me, you know, so it is about those relationships. It is about if someone doesn't want something to happen or they consented before and they they are now pulling out of that, to respect that. My, my um, aspirations are secondary to the people that I work with. So that's very central to what I do. Uh,
1: Roberta, um, the, the kind of theme of um, that kind of essence of wanting to resolve something that is um, fundamentally unresolved um, doesn't sound dissimilar to your practice in some ways. Um, are you able to talk a little bit about um, kind of how you've built community around your practice and what some of the drivers were to particularly in terms of to start working with your family as the kind of start of building a community?
4: Mm, Well, I was very interested in making and creating work and facilitating conversations about identity. And I was looking at, and I was inspired by a lot of First Nations artists and the ways in which artists were exploring identity and presenting culture. And it made sense to me that for me to be able to also understand more about my culture and history to look to where my communities lie. And growing up, I didn't I wasn't surrounded by a large brown and black community. So it made sense for me to start with my family first and listening to stories, engaging conversations, in trying to understand my being in this place. Some of those stories and things were perhaps protected from me. Um, with my parents wanting me to perhaps fit in or assimilate um, into structures. So in learning more, um, it made sense for me to go to South Africa and spend sustained amounts of time there with my aunties and uncles and listening to stories and hearing about the histories that very much paralleled what was happening here um, with oppression and learning from my family as to why there's certain thinking and notions that exist within um, my community and for me to make I guess authentic work that speaks to that that I guess is a core part of the research is spending that time and understanding why there are perspectives or narratives and stories but then also what narratives and stories are silenced at the same time in having those conversations. So my art making, I aim to speak to those narratives, but also the difficult conversations that exist within our community as well.
1: Um, and Kate, your, your journey with, in terms of community engaged practice is, um, you've really been playing the long game um, working with the Raukatahi Ensemble for, <laughs> for, for for twenty years, and um, I'm kind of curious to know what what was the social contract that you sort of entered into with that with with those artists? Who my sense is that they were largely kind of untrained, um, and that um, they really were kind of sort of archetypal kind of you know non arts community at that time. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about yeah, that social contract that you entered with them and, and how that relationship has evolved over um, the last 20 years?
5: Yeah, so I, I think that the um, the interesting thing about Raucus is it was never um, the idea to start a theatre company together. It really grew out of um, a project, a six-week project, um, where um, I was invited to make a um, a small work um, to open a conference and I wanted to work with a diverse group of pe- people so we made this tiny little work and um and we just there was so much energy and excitement around our collaboration about way they the way we met and so we wanted to make another work together and we made another work and we loved doing that and then we wanted to make another work together so um And then, you know, as we the desire to keep making work and keep the artistic conversation alive um, around us, the kind of formal structures of a company began to grow and the support began to grow. But um, but um, we always talk about it as an artistic conversation. And when the conversation is no longer um, alive, that's when that's when we'll finish. But it still feels really vital and really vibrant. And it's a real privilege to work. for a long time with a group of people um, around an idea. We have a real shorthand, but we also um, want to take and extend and and question each other further. So we kind of um, challenge each other to, to understand things in a different way. And um, we have a really beautiful culture that we've developed over that long period together. Um, and a way of communication, and a way of being together with very, very—we've di- got fifteen very different people who process things and have different creative processes, and we found um, a way to make a space that that works for us. And largely, to do that, we need time. We need a longer time. We take a long time to make it work together, um, and and that we we come to that space as individuals with with a whole range of complexities and. Um, we think of access and inclusion in the broadest possible way. So um, it's not just about a physical access to the building. And we look at everybody has um, needs and we always ask, you know, what do we need to work well together today and spend time with that question and then we work from there.
1: Yeah, time is such an important ingredient to, <clears throat> for community-engaged practice and kind of planning to have time that's outside of the normal um, kind of arts industry cycle of of producing work is definitely one of the biggest kind of challenges um, in producing and creating community engaged work. Ken, yeah. um, uh, uh, I'm kind of curious to pick up on your experience of um, of the torch, um, and you know, I think that's that the kind of work that you do there is um, you know um, so integral in terms of dealing with the the over incarceration of Indigenous people in Australia. Um, and connecting people, connecting um, you know, uh, um, you know, offenders and ex-offenders to um, to culture. What what's been the the biggest lesson that you've learned in your time working with community in, in that context? That's quite politically charged, um, but also um, working with people who are you know really in, in are in, in sort of very vulnerable um,
3: situations. Yeah, look, there's many key learnings. The main one is to have a good set of open ears attached to your head, um, but also to really deeply acknowledge all of the the knowledge that's available in in this instance within the First Nations community in in this instance, again, in Victoria, but collectively across the country, and to make sure you're really respectful and acknowledging and utilising, and again, listening, listening to histories and listening to stories and listening to experience. And on the other side, that formulates can formulate your sense of of knowledge and purpose, and again, making sure you understand the, the responsibility that you have to your community and that you are part of something something bigger and broader, and to re- remove all the individualism associated with any uh, pursuit you might have. But critically, you know, for the community that I work with for for incarcerated First Nations men and women, again, to to, to listen, just to, to go and to to really have real listening and to understand that. If you're working with the community, the community needs to drive the initiatives. And so I, I very much felt be, almost being a you know a conduit in a sense. You've got the extraordinary knowledge of, it, of our welders and community and that build up that reservoir of incredible knowledge. And then you've got this extraordinary knowledge of the men and women who the program was being developed for. And I made sure I did nothing until I went to talk to men and women who the program would be for. So you've got to pull back, you've got, you've got to allow community to drive it and you are part of that community so you're part of a driving process but to not go in with any preconceptions to not think that you know that you know or have that knowledge and to allow that knowledge to be to come forth from your community or the community that you're working with in this instance i think it's been very important that community members deliver the program to the community that it's for
1: um, I'm kind of keen to move the shift the conversation into looking at how our community interfaces with um, the public sphere and how, what that's looked like in your various practices um Kate I might start with you um, so in in 2015 you created a mass gathering in fed square um, where over 400 people um, with and without disability congregated to, to dance um, I wanted to start here because I think this is probably the most again the archetypal kind of example of what it is to be to occupy public space um, can you talk a bit about what your motivation was behind being hyper visible um, in that kind of way
5: yeah um it was a beautiful project um firstly it was um it was done at federation square which was a which is a very um complex space um, and has um, people with disabilities have uh, different relationships with it because it has a cobbled floor and uneven floor it's actually a very difficult space to navigate and negotiate for a lot of people and um, we wanted to talk we wanted to kind of think about that space which had was so problematic and how we could occupy it in a different way and um, so we invited people to dance with us in that space and the take-up was incredible. We, we actually had more people, but we, we didn't have the capacity. More people were interested in doing that. We just didn't imagine how many people would be interested in working with us on that project. And the beautiful thing about that project is to participate in it um, and it was open. Um, all of our projects are uh, in... Um, open to anyone they're completely inclusive and um, bring together a range of communities and to participate in that project you had to attend one rehearsal there were six various rehearsals so it was really just chosen by when suited people and I've never had the process of running a rehearsal with such diversity so um, each rehearsal sometimes there would be there was like Council workers from City of Port Phillip, who are the organisation that um, support Raucus, um, council that supports Raucus, next to um, private school dance a private school dance class who wanted to do it next to um, uh, members of um, who live in supported accommodation there. So this real mismatch, a mash of people all learning the same choreography together and then um, all experiencing this moment of mass dancing together in Federation Square. Um, and it was a really, really beautiful experience of coming together to reclaim that space, but for for a real diverse range of people. Um, it was quite magnificent.
1: Um, and Roberta, in your practice, um, there's a sense of kind of reclaiming public space in your practice as well. And I'm thinking particularly around the kind of interventions into public space for uh, We Copple, We Dala, and then also the, um, uh, the video documentation of, um, of uh, commemoration marches around District 6. Um, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to sort of take up, take up space in that kind of way?
4: Well, the We Wikopul Widala, um, one of the works uh, exhibited in that exhibition, uh, Mother Otherland, was very much me thinking about archives or colonial archives and wanting to speak back to them and how in public spaces the narratives that are, they're like colonial narratives that are always centred. So I wanted to think about also my being in this place and my mother other land and how I navigate these kind of two continents that have both experienced their own kind of apartheids as well and how a work can facilitate having these conversations in community of the language and power structures that still inform the way we move in public space. So with we Widala, I, through the many conversations and learning from family that I've been with here and in South Africa Um, in the video it's a multi-channel video work Um, I weave through various sites that represent loss and reclamation or absence and presence so some of the sites are homes that my family once lived in but due to group areas act were forced to remove from um, street signs that once read Kitchener that are now Albertina Susulu and the mantle that Cecil Rhodes' statue once stood that is now being removed by the people. So I wanted to revisit these sites to also explore my relationship with the wider um, diaspora communities' relationships to these sites in order to act as a vehicle to rethink about um, the narratives that exist in public space and... Yeah, remembering District 6, um, I happened to be in Cape Town when it was the uh, 50th anniversary of the forced removals. And now, if you have ever been, there is the rebuilding of the community. It's obviously not the same because many of the infrastructure and site, for a long time, There was a visual scar of just barren, kind of bulldozed land. So, That in that work as well, I joined with the march and we're having many conversations and walking with my aunties and thinking about, you know, um, these kind of narratives and how it's influenced um, our understandings of identity and history and how my kind of stories can connect to um, parallel stories and have the conversations that need to be had in this context.
1: Um, and Ken, your um, your practice has a interesting relationship with public space that, in a in a sense, is similar to Roberta's, where it kind of um, shifts in and out of public space, of um, taking works, kind of looking at looking to country and bringing that into the gallery space, but then also taking work artwork and taking it into the public space. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, why um, the, what the relationship with public or cultural space is for you um, and how that kind of connects to the um, I guess your goals around um, you know reconnecting disconnected a um, uh, disconnected cultural narrative?
3: Yes, yeah, so look quite a lot of uh, alignment see with what Roberta said and particularly from those lived experiences and around presence and absence in not only the built environment, but within the the changed landscape. And again, it's interesting how it comes down to family histories and and erasures from landscape. That's really around how my practice started. And you think of the the colonial narrative up in Tipperborough, where where my father was born and lived and and his parents and and their parents. What's standing there as the main narrative today is an upside down boat. Uh, celebrating the failed, you know, Sturt's failed mission to find the inland sea that never existed and the refusal to acknowledge. Indigenous knowledge that was so embedded in that area, thirty thousand years of occupation. You reckon we know if there's an inland sea there? But no, the failed mission continues, and what stands as a monument today is an upside down boat. Well, what used to be there—it was the the shanty town where my family lived, and so many other families lived that were just erased and and disappeared from that landscape. So there's your absence, you know. And then re-engaging in a way to. um, build that presence for people for, to just look just in the in the narrative of this country and it's ongoing and I see it in every day day and that's why I'm so I guess focused on the built environment around place and country and those stories and, and all the narratives that this country doesn't know and all those beautiful shared histories you can erase buildings and you can erase kind of Accessibility, but you can never erase the, the stories and memories of, of peoples and communities. And that's why there's such a strong force. And this is a bit very much again in, embedded in the in my practice and from both sides. To give presence to those stories and histories, you know, to to make that which is unseen seen. As soon you know, there's an example down the street here, there's a plaque on the wall of a, of a fence that says. This fellow lived here. Now, he was, he was one of the surveyors, I think, on, on Sturt's mission, and he lived on, uh, Ar- no, sorry, on, um, God, uh, it's not Argyle Street. It's where I work. I should know Octavia Street <laughs> for, for, for only a, a decade or so. But, you know, there's a 30, 40, 50,000-year history and stories related there. But here's this one house where this reasonably insignificant fellow lived, but there's a plaque there. Now, that narrative says something about the country and how we feel and think about place and our relationship to it. So my practice really tries to reconstruct that, reconfigure it. Let's reshape the debate. Let's really, you know, redefine the balance. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, but you got me fired up on this one. Uh, <laughs> and so, whether it's um, publicly in, in public spaces or whether it's in the gallery spaces, and again, you're, you know, bringing. Those stories and narratives from country into into a confined space, taking things outside and building those stories and narratives. It's about accessibility. It's about trying to find a conversation or build a conversation, and it's really important. And that's again, we get back to community and responsibility. Well, it's part of our responsibility to do that. Oh, I better pop down now.
1: Um, well, on the on the theme of, I guess, um, you know, um, uh, resistance and um. In, in cultural narrative. I think that connects, Eugenia, to what you were talking about earlier, which was about, you know, kind of at the heart of your um, practice um, is around resistance and liberation and protest. Um, and um, I, you've also previously sort of described um, the kind of public sphere as kind of ho- as a hostile dominant culture and there's a Guardian article from 2016 where you kind of unpack what you mean by that. And kind of standing by that that phrase, um, there's a there's a there's a um, certain amount of resilience that an artist needs um, to be able to be have that kind of in a sense activist mind frame, but to also be able to kind of call out the culture um, and the kind of problematic culture that we exist in. Um, what kind of what kind of mechanisms have you built for yourself, or seen other artists build for themselves, to be able to Kind of navigate a, a kind of hostile public sphere.
2: Yeah, look, I, I want to start by echoing a lot of what, um, you know, Kent and Roberta and, and Kate as well have been sort of talking about. You know, public space is just this, um, well, I think for people who are marginalized in society or marginalized by um, the dominant groups. It is, for I think of it as highly hostile, and you know, listening to what Kent was saying about um, that erasure of, you know, of First Peoples and that way of thinking about even just what what should be remembered or what what counts as history, you know, to me that so signifies how hostile the environment is around us. And so I really want to start by acknowledging that for First Peoples, it's hostile just to exist, whether that's in an art space, whether that's in a cultural institution or not, full stop in this country, it is it is very difficult for us to um, exist full stop. And that is hostile from um, the moment you're born, particularly through schooling, it can be really, really hostile and you get all sorts of um, messaging that just dismisses who you are as a person, your history, your knowledges. So, you know, 30,000 years of knowledge of knowing there's not an inland body of water gets dismissed and that gets reinforced over 200 and something years through all of the institutions in this country education the legal system um, parliament uh, and that comes into arts and cultural institutions and you know I um, a while ago I went to this is quite some time ago I I went and spoke to um, a couple of groups of like you know different Muslim schools talking to them about writing and literature and I start by asking the, the kids and young people about what kinds of stuff that they read. And people are still reading stuff like, you know, Enid Blyton and, you know, now these days I think people would probably read a lot more American stuff. But why, why aren't people reading, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors? Why, why do we, um, yeah, we, we still live in this very hostile environment in a in a cultural and, and art sense so you know building that sense of resilience is important for me what I do it's really hard to be public all the time and and the type of work I do it can make you feel like you have two heads and you you know you can spend a lot of time anticipating I am no, I'm going to cop a lot of flack for what I'm saying about this or um, you know because I live you know, my embodiment is as an Aboriginal Chinese and Muslim woman, people would even deny me who I am, you know. People question who I am all the time and they will, you know, say things like, oh, that can't be true or, you know, how did that happen? Really rude stuff. And so just even that, you know, it it is so hostile. So building up um, resilience for that is hugely important. And I do that by having private time. You know, someone was asking me about what I put out there um, publicly and, you know, how vulnerable am I? And I, I would say I'm vulnerable to a certain extent, but there is a lot that I keep private. And I have a really, 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 really good support network in my private space, people who aren't in any of the worlds that I work in and they have nothing to do with that, and that's my safe space. So building that up, building up um, then networks of really good allies in the spaces that I work is also really
1: important. Um, There's a few questions that have come up in the um, chat stream that are specifically about the events of the last um, 10 months and 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 questions around how... um, COVID-19 impact, but also um, the Black Lives Matter and Aboriginal Lives Matter movements um, and the intensity, um, the growing kind of divide between individualism and collective responsibility around COVID-19. Um, we've kind of seen a lot of that kind of um, heightened and compressed compressed over the last 10 months. Um, so just to, I'm curious to open this up to, to everyone, really. How, how have the events of the last 10 months um, uh, affected or changed or, or changing your practice?
3: Mm. I'll jump in. Look, I, for me, I think you know, personally there's been a reinforcing of, of the importance of Indigenous knowledges, philosophies and systems that are embedded in this country. And I think we see no stronger example than the immediate action that was taken to protect remote communities, particularly elders. And you can see the inverse action in, in relation to what's happened in aged care. There's a, a, a very different balance of, of, of care there, and I think that's a really important one. For me, it reinforced also how important it is to to understand your interconnectedness, and not only to, to each other, but to, to all things. You know, I, I'm big on this, but I think it's it's big in, our, in in our philosophies around you know plants animals sky water land and to see the kind of clearing of the skies and the waterways and and just to understand that there's more to your experience than than your own experience that you're you're part of not only a community you're part of the you know you're part of the cosmos and so I think it's been really interesting to see how resilient first nations philosophy systems and structures are within this period that we're going through. I
2: agree with um, everything that Kent just said, you know, like, um, now is the time for people to recognize that the um, dominant Western paradigm that we live in—that sounds so wanky—but um, you know, the the kind of Western worldview of individualism and consumerism and a capitalist society is not working. And that's revealed in so many different ways. Through, um, I can't believe you called us all out by saying the last ten months. That's so long, um, but you know that that kind of, you know, um, consciousness is important. I think for us to remember, it's it's just not working, and it's not it's not sustainable. And it's so close to collapse and it is collapsing around us when we think about the environment, when we think about economies, it is we are literally in it collapsing in a really slow way. And it's a little bit like that, what's that analogy or whatever it is about, you know, the frog in the pot of cold water and you turn the heat up and slowly, slowly it gets warmer and warmer. We are literally in that. And I think one of the things that I really worry about is that people um Say that, but they are so embedded and invested in it that they cannot think of other alternatives, and so they go, "Oh, the, the alternative is communism." There are so many other alternatives um, that you can have, and you know, just as Kent was saying, first people's knowledge is is one of those. You know, for me as a as a Muslim woman, like I know that we, you know, Islam has a as a different epistemology, a different way of being, and a different you know, way of, of knowledges. And that's an alternative. There are so many different alternatives and, you know, most of those alternatives are ones that place primacy on the collective good over the individual. And I think we just need more and more of that in society and and how my practice has, in, has, has changed is really just to go, um, two things, you know, one is to, ramp up that connection to people checking in on people uh you know that kind of thing and the second thing is to go actually capitalism really sucks and in the arts you know because of the public nature of what you do or the the fact that you need to keep your arts practice going you know on some level you need public recognition or you need um uh people to desire your work um trying not to well, setting that aside for some time and just go I don't always need to produce and it's okay to take a break and we can come back to that later and I can hit pause and I don't have to compete in um in a in a rat race because even that comes into the art world and I think that's really sad
1: Thanks, Eugenia. Um, we're, we're almost at time. So I'm gonna throw to Kate for you for a comment on this one and then over to you, Roberta, after that, and then we'll um, we'll bring it to a close. Sure.
5: Well, I, I think, I mean, I think at the core of um of my practice is relationship and connection and that interconnectedness that Kent spoke about, that we're all um interdependent. And um one one of the things that happened at this time, you know, I would say our ensemble, which is, you know, at, is a very strong connected um group that we you know and suddenly when the lockdown hit it dispersed and I couldn't find people and I couldn't find people because I lived in assisted accommodation and um and we don't have an online practice we don't communicate we we meet in a a place and a time and that's how we meet together and so it took us quite a long time to find each other which was surprising given that we're such a and then also it took another step to 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 connect um online because not everyone had access to equipment or the knowledge or the time and that that was a really um sobering and a really great reminder for me around um and now we are 10 months down the track all connected but it was a big process in and um and it's not always accessible you know for the first few months you know we'd be in, in the in the room together and someone's video would be pointing at their crutch and you'd have to or you'd see the top of their head and or you know it's not really an ideal um communication platform for lots of people so we had to really Think about access again um, and again and again and um and just how inequitable that is was really stark for me in this time.
4: Yeah, I think um echoing Kent and Eugenia and Kate, you know, COVID and this and the last 10 months or whatnot, it's really exacerbated the existing classism and racism and harmful structures in the communities that we're living in and if we want to actually see systemic change it really needs to involve authentic consultations and relationships with community and it's not just something that is a hashtag shared temporarily and disappears again like there needs to be a sustained like journey and commitment towards
1: um change that needs to clearly occur fantastic i think that's a good note to end on um and uh in wrapping up um for today i'd also just like to acknowledge that the work that you all do in your practices in terms of um in terms of healing and cultural healing um that's something that's really present throughout all of your practices um and i feel as though we're in good hands um culturally um with um artists that are in this room and i hope it's been a Um, insight into your practices for um, people listening and watching with us today. Um, A big thank you um, to the panellists joining us. So Kent, Roberta, Eugenia and Kate, a big thank you to you. Um, A big thank you to um, uh, the ACCA team, Max, Miriam, Bianca and Annika for making this possible. Um, And a big shout out to our Auslan interpreters as well, Brooke and Nick. Um, Thank you very much for your work. Um, And that's the conclusion of today's Think Tank and um, I'm looking forward to Think Tank number three.